In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Judges chapter 6. Imagine living in constant fear of losing everything you've worked for. Well, that was the reality for the Israelites, who had been raided and robbed by the Midianites every harvest season. They had no hope and no help. That is, until God intervened and called an unlikely hero, Gideon. He wasn't a warrior or a leader, but a simple farmer who, when God approached him, was secretly processing wheat in a wine press to hide it from their enemies. God would call Gideon to confront the idolatry of his own family and then ultimately lead his people in battle against the Midianites. Good morning and blessed Holy Tuesday to you. Today is Tuesday, April 4th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. This is the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. And I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. We are grateful for the support of the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, a ministry that provides Lutheran resources in various languages around the world. You can learn more about their work and how to get involved at lhfmissions.org. Well, continuing our Holy Week study of Judges, chapter uh, now six, uh, I'm going to have as my guest this morning the Reverend Kevin Parvis. He's the pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor Parvis, welcome back to the program. Good morning. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing great. How? Uh, well, Holy Week's only one day in, but how, or two days in maybe, but how has uh, Lenten tide and everything been going for you at your congregation? Doing very well. Yeah, we had a nice, uh, we had our Passover Seder on the afternoon of Palm Sunday, and a lot of people came to that, and we uh, enjoyed telling that story again, and it's all good. Well, wonderful. Well, we have uh, an interesting text today. Gideon is one of those ones where, you know, unlike some of the judges or deliverers or redeemers in the book of Judges, Gideon does get some time in Sunday school. I think a lot of people have probably heard about him. But hopefully, as we go through the uh, narrative today, we'll learn some new things. Uh, before we dig into it, though, I'd love to invite you to start us off with prayer. Sure. Abba Father, we thank and praise you for this day, and especially for the events of this week that we memorialize and mark and celebrate and worship. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for the ultimate deliverer that you have sent us in Messiah Yeshua. And we pray, Father, that as we look at these types that come from your word, that, Father, they would help us to look forward and look back, not only to our redemption, but also to the ultimate day that is coming when we will all be called together to that great wedding feast. We pray all these things, B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. Amen. So yesterday we were, you know, in Judges chapter 5, which is a great poetic retelling of Judges chapter 4 with Deborah and Barak and Jael. And then, of course, it ends as a lot of them do, and the land had rest for 40 years, like a generation. Uh, before we read what happens next in chapter 6, is there anything that you want people to know about? Other than the fact this is a long chapter to get through this particular show, we're going to do it, I guess. That's up to you. But it is, this, the Judges always has this cycle of the land had rest and then the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We can never hold on. I mean, God shows himself as mighty so often, and yet we continue to be lured by the uh, the evils of the world and the pagans around us. And it's just, uh, it's, you know, Judges is, for me, just... Uh, uh, just a sad commentary on the, the nature of sin and humanity and, and gives me so much 
more to be thankful of that that God sent Jesus to die for us and take our sin with it. Sure. Well, I tell you what, then, since we do have a lot to get through, why don't we read verses 1 through 10? This is going to set the stage. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the east, would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come up like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste waste, uh, to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to Yahweh. When the people of Israel cried out on account of the Midianites, Yahweh sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says Yahweh the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am Yahweh your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So he sends them a prophet. He reminds them that they are reaping what they've sown. Right, brother? Yeah, and again, and God does this throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, this reminder that I brought you up by the hand out of the land of Egypt. This whole narrative that happens this week uh, especially culminates in our celebration of the Lord's Supper and and uh, the commandment to love one another. Uh, that's that's the backdrop of this. You know, you guys, I've, I've done all this for you, and you just stop listening. You keep, you keep disobeying me. Right. I mean, they he specifically told them, too, to not go after the, the gods of the nations around them. And we're going to find that that's a that's a big part of what's going on is they they're just they're giving in to these these pagan gods and they're they're adapting worship practices that they should be, well, basically avoiding. And, and so now, finally, when they're constantly attacked, they now decide they're going to return to the Lord. And it's not that the Lord isn't going to save them, but he does send them a prophet and reminds them that, well, you know, this is what I was warning you against. Um, who is the prophet that he sent them, though? Who's, who's this prophet? This He's not named right here. Right, he's not named yet. But, I mean, it, it, it is interesting. This, I mean, Moses warned them that this would happen. I mean, God, through Moses, had no illusions as to their ability to continue to be faithful. And this, of course, is the fruit of not doing what God said in the first place when they entered into the land. Uh, so he's going to send them this. Uh, and, and I love this prophet who is yet unnamed because it reminds me of the prophet of the, of the prophet Micah and his uh, prophecy of the one who will come from the least of the smallest of the clans. And that's what we have here coming up. Well, that's right. We have... Uh, Gideon, of course, on the scene. Um, anything else you want to go before we move into the call of Gideon? I mean, Gideon is just a farmer. I think the name Gideon, I think it means uh, uh, one who fells trees or something like that. Uh, just uh, he's clearing the land, right? And he's actually uh, trying to trying to uh, 
hide his wheat in a wine press because, so that the Midianites don't get it. So he's a fairly meek fellow, I suppose. And yet yeah, God that's calls the, him a like warrior. Yeah. yeah, that's the sense I get, because, well, as we're going to hear, when they find him, he's kind of secretly doing something. Uh, let's read verses 11 through 18. Now the angel of Yahweh came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my lord, if Yahweh is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not Yahweh bring us up from Egypt? But now Yahweh has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And Yahweh turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And Yahweh said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not part from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Now before we get into what happens Next. Um, so Gideon is called by the angel of the Lord, and then later just sort of switched to just Yahweh talking. Um, he he is of a, a, a weak part of a clan and sort of a half clan at that. I mean, um, he definitely it, it is another situation where he's like, why are you picking me? I mean, and he, and he picks Gideon for the same reason he picks Abraham, right? And for the same reason, he picks Bethlehem, right? It's the smallest that shows God's great, God's glory. Uh, the, he, he did not pick Abraham because he was the greatest number, but small. And uh, and here he picks. Yeah, and I, and I found it interesting because when you read the text, you read the angel of the Lord. Though you typically will read Yahweh as being in there, but it's it's Malach Yahweh, right? The angel of Yahweh. And uh, there's a lot of evidence, and I think I, I think it's reasonably clear that this is like the pre-incarnate Jesus here. Uh, the the Malach Yahweh is uh, a special angel, and Gideon will reflect that later when he realizes who he's talking to. Yeah, yeah, I I have to uh, sort of translate it on the fly here, so sometimes I miss yeah. them. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I like to make that distinction since we're not looking at the text uh, to see that you know all caps there. But yeah, right. So we have this, uh, you know, pre-incarnate Christ, the this manifestation of of the second person of the Godhead, however you want to describe it. Yeah, he's talking to God Himself, and he and I love just how he's like, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, w- w- wait a minute, Lord, w- you know, where why are all these things happening? You know, if you're the one who brought us out of the land of Egypt, then then why have you forsaken us, or why has Yahweh forsaken us when he's just speaking to the angel? And, and is it appropriate? I mean, so Midian, Gideon is perhaps wondering what this is about. Why me, Lord? You know, that kind of thing. And I think all of us kind of have that experience at some point. And then Gideon says, I need a sign. I need to know that this is you who I'm dealing with. So is he, you know, and I, I don't know, if, you know, because I, I, we're going to end this text with the sign, too. 
And I always, I, you know, I always struggle with is asking God for a sign, testing him. Uh, you know, what, what, what is that all about? Or is it just an image? Is it just a reflection of our weakness? Does Gideon, is he suspecting that this might be a false, you know, demon that might be there from the gods of the Midianites? I mean, what is this with the sign? And I, you know, and I, I think we often find ourselves in that where we're, we're hearing something from God. And I think this is an important thing. Today we hear from God by, and the Holy Spirit prompts us to test what we hear according to his word. So in a sense, we, are, we continue to say, I need a sign. And today when we hear from God, we test what we think we're hearing according to his word to determine whether that's true. And that's kind of what Gideon is doing here as well. I can see that for sure. You know, I think Gideon is certainly confused. You know, God comes to him and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, to a man who is hiding. Uh, Well, you know, he's secretly treading the grain in such a way so that, you know, they they don't see that he's doing it. And it obviously, maybe for most people, but for me, recalls the interaction with the angel and the Blessed Virgin. And so mm-hmm. the difference, though, is she doesn't necessarily say, well, I, I need a sign that this is going to be the case. The angel just gives her a sign, right, without her asking, and she submits to that. So the need for a sign, you know, if I'm just talking off the cuff here, I would say it, it relates a lot to, you know, what type of sign you're looking for. When we look to the scriptures, we're basically going where God has directed us to check you know, the, the word that, you know, if we're encountering a teaching or a revelation or an angel, even, you know, we should check those things against his revelation. Um, Gideon here, the sign he's asking for, I guess, is one that God will concede. He will give him, but probably out of his weakness more than I guess Gideon's right to ask for one. I don't know. What do you think? I just think, I think that, that, you know, God wants us to know who he is. I mean, that's, that's what he said when he gave us the ironic benediction, which we're going to see an allusion to here in a little bit. Um, and so, you know, I, again, I, I, I think our faith is founded in, in the Holy Spirit and the work of God through his word. Uh, and yet we always, as, as human beings, you know, sort of doubt the call that God I won't say doubt, but we don't feel ourselves to be up for it. And so we want to know that God is with us whenever God is calling us into something that we're not sure we're prepared for. And I think that's all Gideon is doing. Well, I could definitely see that, too. You know, And I see a lot of connections for today when we think about all the great things that God has done for his people throughout history— And we're called to remember those things continuously as we reflect on the Scriptures. This week is about remembering what God has done for us through the passion of Christ. But at the same time, we are tempted, like like Gideon here, to say, you know, Lord, you say you're with me, right? It says the Lord is with you. But, you know, if you're with me, then why are all these bad things happening? I think that's a real temptation. We can all really connect with Gideon here. But really, you know, it's uh, it's unusual that uh, Gideon doesn't recall that his people have been very unfaithful, and there's a good reason for all of this. I mean, God is a just God who demands, you know, he demands justice. 
And so he's not going to just let us go and uh, not be disciplined. Sure. So is that message directly applicable today, though, if the person comes up and says, Pastor, you know, I just don't understand why God is is allowing these things to happen. I mean, is the answer, well, he must be disciplining you for your unfaithfulness. I don't know if that's the approach. I don't know if that's the right answer, but I think one of the answer I usually give to anybody who asks me that question is, well, what is God trying to teach you by having, by having you go through these things? Uh, because, you know, certainly evil happens. You know, hard things, bad things happen. We live in a broken world. It's, it's not all God's doing, but God does allow it, and he allows it, I think, for a reason. And we don't always know, but I think we always have to ask ourselves, why are we going through this trouble? And it, it makes us introspective, and, and, and I think by, especially now, with, with the power of the Holy Spirit, God can prompt us to say, oh, forgive me, Lord, uh, and, and then receive his forgiveness. But until we get to that, you know, Sometimes I think we can nurse sin that we don't even know we're nursing because it's, we're just so used to it, uh, and and we have to be prompted. And you know, and we certainly receive the fruit of our activity. Well, one thing you talk about too, and I just think about all of this because he's being confronted with this idea, and it doesn't make sense to him, so he's suspicious, and so. Perhaps him questioning these things and perhaps him asking for a sign is about the fact that he's not yet convinced that the this person, this 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 encounter that he's having, he calls him Lord, not in at you know, in just sort of the generic Lord sense. Right. So so maybe this is about testing this person to make sure that they are really from whom they say they are. And so that's where the sign comes in. But then I guess that would be where the gift comes in because it has this gift offering. I guess my question is, you know, does Gideon know that this is Yahweh at this point when he's wanting to go grab a gift? It's, it's, it's interesting because it reminds me of Abraham when he was, um, you know, entertaining mm -hmm. the Trinity right there in, in and Sarah of course was out there talking you know laughing because God said he was going to have a son um, I suppose if this was not the angel of the Lord if this was not God himself would he have hung around is that the sign I mean because the the answer right. is I will stay till you return um, Maybe there's something in there that that clicks Gideon to say this is a legitimate a legitimate call. It must because you know otherwise I'm not 100 percent sure this first time around what the what the sign specifically is. But he please do not depart from here until I come to you. I'm going to bring out a present and I'm going to give it to you. And then of course the Lord says, "Okay, well I'll stay here till you return." I would think that a, an average uh, con man would probably do that too, but we'll see. We'll see how it plays out because uh, this, Gideon. Go ahead. Is this an allusion to a sacrifice before the before God? I mean, there's all there's all kinds of stuff that could be packed in here. Right. Well, and that's what we're trying to unpack to see what it see what yeah. it could be. I'm going to read well, verses 19 through 24 because that is what happens next. Here we go. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them uh, to him under the terebinth and presented them. 
And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of Yahweh reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of Yahweh vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of Yahweh, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord Yahweh, for now I have seen the angel of Yahweh face to face. But Yahweh said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to Yahweh and called it Yahweh is peace. And to this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abyssalites. So, you know, his, his, yeah, his having them hang out, you know, that's not really the sign, but that seems to be something that he wants them to do, I guess, so he can go make this thing. And of course, we now have this miraculous sign that convinces Gideon. But he didn't ask for this particular sign. He didn't say, you know, burn up this meat and I'll believe. He just said, you know, show me that you're who you say you are. And of course, for for me, and having just come and we're we're getting into the Passover season here this week as well, I mean, this is Passover language. The young goat is the sacrificial lamb that is whose blood is painted on the doorpost, and unleavened cakes. I mean, so he is now is it is he doing this because he's in a hurry, or is he actually doing this because God himself has brought to his attention? the Passover, the the great deeds of God's deliverance. And so he brings this, and then you've got this fire that consumes them, which, of course, we were reminded of later. I mean, there's, there's just, it's an amazing uh, image to to what is going on within Gideon, and God is basically showing his consistency in doing all of this. Sure, I, but I would, I guess I would also argue, though, that I don't think he knew that this was Yahweh or the Lord until the sign. Yeah. Right. He doesn't have a clue. He's he's testing. I mean, I think he suspects because the guy Malach Yahweh identified himself as such. Right. But he doesn't know. He doesn't know until after the fire the fire consumes everything. Then what I find interesting in this text too is the Malach Yahweh then vanishes from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that it was the Malach Yahweh, and he, and he cries out, Alas, I have seen your face. And then he's vanished from his sight, but God still talks to him. Peace to you, right? Yeah, that one's fascinating because he's not in person anymore. He's communicating to him, I guess, audibly or in some other way, but he's he's still there with him. Oh, yeah. And I guess he's he's worried because there's this idea that you can't see God and live. Right. Which is what the whole ironic benediction is about, which is so ironic. It's not ironic, it's ironic too, because God wants us to see his face and live, which I always connect to the incarnation. Are there instances in the Old Testament where um, where someone died because they saw God face to face? I mean, I... I don't think of it. I know Moses wanted to. That's where it comes from. Moses says, show me your face. And God says, no one can see my face and live. And he sticks his his face in a cleft of a rock and passes behind him. But then later he says, tell your brother to to say this blessing over Israel. I want you guys to see my face and live. 
Uh, and that's that's the illusion to the incarnation that we, because we do. I mean, certainly Mary saw God's face face to face and lived. Joseph saw God's face. The shepherds saw God's face. Uh, so yes, there are those instances in the New Testament where many people saw God's face and lived. Uh, but it's because of it was that it was the promise of the of that time that God had brought to fulfillment in the incarnation. Yeah, and that's why I bring it up, because as you said, in Exodus 33, you know, God flat out says, you can't see my face, no one can see me and live, and yet that never seems to happen. So there's always this this tension between the reality that we deserve death in the presence of God, and yet in God's mercy, um, I don't know of any recorded instance where just by that reason, people have dropped dead because they've encountered God. He's always either protected them from that, or he's made right. these beautiful exceptions, as you said, pointing to the to the Incarnation. Yeah, yeah. Well, so Gideon has prepared this uh, uh, young goat, the unleavened bread, the ephah of flour. Um, what, what I he says it puts he put the meat in a basket, the the broth he put in a pot. He took him to the tree, right? And so I'm going back a little bit, but this fire that comes up and sort of consumes them. Um, obviously, God doesn't eat, <laughs> so there's there's something to be said about the fact that this is how they could be consumed by God. Um, you say that this is pointing uh, forward. Does this connect in any other way to any other you know uh, allusions in the Bible when it comes to God and fire? Well, again, I uh, I find it interesting that in this particular case, the fire springs up from the rock. Uh, and this, and and of course, in the in the Exodus narrative, there is this column of fire, you know, by by night that goes before the Israelites in the wilderness. But then, of course, we have the the uh, Elijah and the prophets of Moab that uh, where God the fire can, comes from heaven and consumes the altar that they have built. Um, so you have all of that, I think, as as looking forward. Well, it makes sense to me. I tell you what. Well, you know what? These are some things for us to ponder about as we take just a few minutes for a break. So, folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor uh, Parviz and I will keep on going with Judges 6. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boom. With me today is the Reverend Kevin Parvis, pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. Friends, thank you for gathering around God's Word with us this morning. I just 
love it when you join us and you grow in your faith toward uh, toward <laughs> faith toward God and your love towards others with us. I just want to let you know that if you have any questions or comments or you want to correct any of my mistakes, you can send me an email at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me at Facebook. And you know what? If you like Thy Strong Word, I just want to, as I always do about this time, to encourage you to share it with others. They might enjoy it too. Thy Strong Word airs on AM850 in St. Louis. You can stream it live or on demand at kfuo.org, favorite podcasting services, KFUO apps. You got all kinds of ways that you can connect with the program. All right, Pastor Parviz, we're back from our break. And uh, we were just sort of finishing up this part where he has brought a, a present. And this present turns out to be more of a, 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 I guess, a food offering, something to keep the goodwill. This, this, this gift, this offering is then consumed in this miraculous way by the Lord. Now he's afraid, but God still speaks to him and says, you won't die. And then Gideon builds an altar there to Yahweh and says, Yahweh is peace. And the author of Judges lets his readers know that you can actually go see that altar. It's still in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abyssalites. Uh, anything about that we want to make sure we know before we move on to the next section? I think we're ready to go. Well, that sounds good. So in our next section, um, it's that same day, or rather that night, uh, God tells him to do something. Here we go. Verse 25, That night Yahweh said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to Yahweh your God on top on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as Yahweh had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So there's that altar that uh, was being spoken of, and this is how it came to be. He uh, he he tore down his dad's his dad's I guess uh, uh, idolatrous altar and used the wood of the the uh, Asherah to to burn an offering to Yahweh. Uh, that's pretty bold, but still we see his fear and trepidation. Hmm. I mean, I, you know, I think clearly his family is offering up. To, to false idols too, so he has to deal with that. This is this is the what what have we done to deserve this, Lord? And he's asked that question earlier, and now he's taking care of it. Yeah, you know, I think even though it describes him as being afraid of his family and afraid of the men of the town, at the same time he is acting out in faith. He is literally confronting the idolatrous worship of his father in a very uh, real sense, in a cathartic, like literally tearing down the family altar and using it to burn. I mean, they're going to know who did it. Uh, so really his doing it by night is out of fear because the scriptures tell us that, but it's probably practical too, because no one's going to stop him overnight. Um, I think it speaks a lot to though, as you've implied, to confronting the idolatry of our own lives too. You know, you mentioned a couple of times, like he he sort of silly says, why is this happening? And he's not looking at his own unfaithfulness. Uh, but at the same time, you know, as we connect this to our lives and experience today, 
how many things, how many idolatrous things have we built up around us, things in which we're putting our faith, hope, and trust in rather than the Lord, and yet we then get upset at the Lord when things don't go our way? Uh, I, I think there is a direct connection to our experience. And as I said, sometimes we, we nurture those Id- idols without even being really consciously aware of very, that, that we've done that. And so we need to be reminded, and that's what's happening here with Gideon. I do love that. I love Joe Ash's response, though. Let Baal contend for himself. <laughs> right. Well, you know, we, we, have, we have this. Um, well, I tell you what, why don't we go on then so we can read that section of it? Here we go. Oh, did I get ahead of you? Sorry about that. Just a little bit, but that's okay because I agree with you. Verses 28 through 32. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Yeah, tell us about that response from Joash, because that is pretty good. Yeah, what's amazing to me is that Joash, I think Joash has to come to a crossroads here right because he's obviously knows about this altar that the 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 altar of baal and the ashra pole here so uh and yet he comes to this crossroads now in front of this group of his own people who apparently are really upset that he's destroyed this altar to a false god and he's and he picks his son and and uh yeah I, I can't help it. Maybe it's just because the Holy Week narratives are just rolling through my head. But this, it, it is, it really strikes me between Peter and Jesus in the garden. Don't you think I could contend for myself? Uh, and Joash is kind of picking that uh, for for the people. He said, "If God, if Baal is such a god, let him contend for himself. You know, don't 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 kill. He can kill." Gideon if he wants to. Uh, and I just think that's uh, an interesting connection and, and juxtaposition with the events in the garden. Well, yeah, I mean, they're basically telling Joash, though, you know, you need to sacrifice, kill your son because he has offended the Baal. And even, I guess, from a sense of fatherly protection, he's going to say, well, let's just see what Baal does. You know, let's let's see if he's such a god and he's offended, then he'll take care of it. Um, so I guess yeah, whether or not whether or not this is a ruse to protect Gideon or whether he is expressing some doubt about the fact that, you know, maybe this god isn't true. Uh, I, I don't know. I think it's kind of unclear, but it, it's certainly interesting. And then, of course, now we have uh, Gideon getting this nickname, Jerub Baal. Uh, you know, so Baal will deal with you, I guess, is the idea. Yeah. And I, again, I do think that Joash has to come to a crossroads here and pick a false god who he knows to be false in his heart. He must. 
uh, and of course his son. So it's it's a, it's an interesting, you know, even though it's only a few verses, it's a it's a lovely piece of of literature. Right, which is you know again, and I think that's something too. You say he knows it to be false in his heart. Well, whether that's true or not, he's obviously spent considerable time being in oh, the yeah. service of this false god. So I think it took this, as you say, crossroads, this time of reflection, this bringing him to the point where am I really going to defend what I deeply know isn't right against my own flesh and blood? And that is where we don't want to have to go, right? We don't want God to take us to our most extreme points, our, our lowest points, or, or the most tragic consequences before we return to him, before we have to uh, to cast off the false idols that are in our lives. Yeah, and I suppose the reason I contend that uh, they know darn well that this is a false god is because when things go rough, who do they pray to? <laughs> right, they exactly. exactly. To yeah, they pray to Yahweh. So they, you know, they're, they're accommodating culture, you know, and we can talk about all that in our, in our circumstances today. I think there was an ad for that in the... Uh, break for a show that's coming up about how we accommodate culture and things like that. Um, you know, they're, these are the Midianite gods, right? The Edomite gods, the Amalekite gods that they're they're And you, you would think that probably in the midst of this oppression by these people of the East, they've built this altar in the midst of their town just to make peace. And over time, that altar becomes a god. But when push comes to shove, they know who God is, and they go to him. Exactly. And we shouldn't, and I guess my point, too, to build upon you what you're saying, is we in our lives shouldn't wait till um, we're at our lowest point before we call upon the Lord. Let's add to the conversation verses 33 through 35. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of Yahweh clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Bizarites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers through all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. So he's he's calling people together here, but this won't be this won't be the end of it for. Uh, uh, for Gideon, he's still going to want another sign. But before we go into this next sign, uh, what is what's what's mustering here? What's happening? So I, I wonder. I mean, obviously, the scriptures are not a complete telling of you know. It's not like a motion picture where we see all the little pieces in the midst. But tearing down the altar in the midst of this town and burning it, and then making a sacrifice to Yahweh in the in the midst of that. Uh, you know, one has to wonder, do the Midianites have their spies in the town? Sure, they probably do. That's good practice. Um, and so the report has gotten back to them that there's a revolt here. So they are mustering up to come. I mean, it's, it's the, it seems like it's the very act of the destruction of the altar and the sacrifice to Yahweh that has caused them to come together to crush this this pathetic people before they can get too out of hand. Yeah, and so now he's he's getting up, uh, he's getting mustering some forces to help defend against this. Um, well, are you ready to go on to the next and last sign of our text for today? 
Well, I do think I don't want to, to gloss over 34 because it's interesting, especially with the sign that's coming. But the spirit of Yahweh clothed Gideon. That's an interesting phrase. Um, but it, it is, uh, you know, and when you think of God clothing Adam and Eve in the first death, which was the sacrifice of animals so that they could put on uh, these animal skins and clothe themselves. Um, and the, the the sign that's coming is that, kind of animal skin. And I, I just think there's a, I think there's more to that phrase in 34 than sometimes we give a lot of credit for, but, but clearly what it is, is that, uh, and of course we know that prior to Pentecost, the spirit of God was what came upon people for certain actions and for certain deeds. And here's an example of that, but being clothed with it is uh, covered in the spirit it's not clear that the spirit has filled him like it did the uh well actually no even the 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 uh artists artisans who built the tabernacle the spirit came upon them but i think this is an interesting turn of phrase for the writer of the judges to to write especially considering what's coming that he was clothed with the spirit of god yeah, we see this similar language, not the clothing part. That definitely is uh, unique in this instance. But back in Judges 3, it says the spirit of Yahweh was upon him, and he judged Israel, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. I think that also helps explain what happens, that when Gideon goes to make that trumpet call, um, the people really have a, a change in heart, or at least a lot of them, his own clan to begin with, his own tribe, I should say. You know, They, they have a, a change of heart, his northern neighbors, Zebulun, Naphtali. The same ones who fought with Deborah and Barak, they they follow the call. So the you know the Lord is the one behind all of the rescues that are happening in the Book of Judges. So lest we get too far in giving credit to the to the people that God's using, we're reminded here, of course, that it is the Spirit of God that is behind all of this, which is always important to remember. Yeah, and God God already promised Gideon that they would fight as one man in back in uh, what fifteen or sixteen. You shall strike the Midianites as one man, uh, and that's he's calling the tribes together to become one man. And who is the one man that strikes the heel that that crushes the head of the serpent? Though he has been struck, uh, he brings all those tribes together too in that one man who is Jesus. Well, and if only Gideon would have confidence in that word of God and in his own eyes seeing what's happening, because what we read next in verses 36 through 40, which is the end of the chapter, um, he then has some more trepidation. Let's go. Yeah. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me, let, but let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, 
and on all the ground there was dew. So he, time and again, he's putting putting the Lord to the test, his words, right? Let me test. Um, but yeah. he's, but the Lord is patient with him, and that's that's some mercy there. Yeah, that is that is mercy because I, I uh, for it is written, "Thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to a test." But uh, God continues to allow Gideon to do that, and I suppose this shows his trepidation, even as he has proclaimed this mighty man of valor. And it, and it, you know, we are reminded again that God chooses us in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our failings, uh, you know, we don't, we don't choose God. God chooses us. Uh, and sometimes he chooses us for great things and uh, always really to show forth his glory. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it always strikes me. And, you know, we have this phrase now uh, whenever we are trying to discern God's will, I think at least we do in, uh, I don't know. Is it as much of a phrase in Christianity as it is in Judaism about putting a fleece out? I've never heard it before, so I think uh, I think that might answer at least down south. We don't say it. <laughs> yeah, we, we have often said that growing up, you know, if we were trying to discern God's will, we the phrase was we're going to put a fleece out, and it comes from this. Ah. Uh, and I just think that's uh, an, an interesting. I, I I haven't heard it for. A long time, certainly, perhaps since I've become a believer. I don't know, but um, yeah, that certainly was part of my growing up. Was that you kind of tested God by putting a fleece out, and it wasn't a literal fleece, obviously, but uh, it comes from this. And then he does it twice. Yeah, it. it I guess just so it's not a fluke. I suppose it's like you know, here's the test. And now I want the opposite results just to confirm it. I, I don't know. To confirm, yeah, it's like Gideon is. I mean, I, I do think there is a trepidation on his part, even though we see that uh, he's done the work. He's sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. He's sent messengers throughout all. You know, he's prepared. He's done the work, and he's done that on faith, I suppose. But then he must just have this kind of crisis of weakness where he says, you know, am I really on the right track here? Well, I think there's something to be said about God when he calls him. He calls him a, a man of valor, which is ironic, and now he is showing that to be ironic because there's, there's not a lot of valor in what's happening, but really God is describing who he's going to make him be, who he's going to turn him into. Uh, now we know the end of the story. There's a there's a little some some problems with the way Gideon handles things, but but ultimately though, God is describing him as He sees him as He's going to use him, which is mm-hmm. a greater thing than who He is. And so I think what we're seeing right now is really just not who God sees him or has called him to be, but He's still firmly who who He is. You know, a a doubtful uh, a doubtful. A sinner, person who's trepidatious, person who has fear, doesn't trust in the Lord, um, but 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 wants to. I guess you know there's something about him that says, "Listen, I want this to work." It doesn't. He's not doing it so that he can get out of it. It's not as though he's saying, "Well, if you really want me, then do this." Oh, okay. Well, if it's really me, do this. It sounds like to me, as I read it, what he's saying is, I, "I'm willing to do it." I just really want to make sure that you're going to be there with me. And in that way, it kind of reminds me of Barack saying that he's not going to lead the army without Deborah. Right. 
And, and, and don't we all, uh, when, I mean, you know, right now we're getting ready for call day here at the seminary. And, you know, all these young men and sometimes old men, one of my field workers is a, an older guy, and he's a, a delightful guy, but he's getting ready for a new ministry. Um, and, you know, you get your call. Uh, and, of course, the seminary makes it clear we don't have a call until they give us a call. But um, you get your call, and then you wonder, am I really cut out for this, Lord? And you, I don't, I don't know if any of these guys put out any kind of fleece, but uh, I know when I was called into this, this ministry in Jewish missions, and it's a hard mission, and yes, I grant you, I was probably the best prepared of anybody for this kind of thing, but still woefully unprepared. Um, it's easy to have those crises of, of calling, if you will, where you just call out to God and say, give me a sign. You know, am I doing this right? I don't know. I think it's easy to fall into that trap. But, you know, what's interesting about then and today is that back then in Gideon, he has God's word. And God is patient with him, but continuously, and he even, he even gives in to his demands for a sign. But ultimately, what is sure is the word. And, of course, today yeah. we have the word, and that's what we're to look to. Yeah. And the Holy Spirit doesn't just clothe us. It indwells us, right? which is really important. If we're clothed with anything, it's the robe of Christ's righteousness, which sort of brings us to uh, the end of this part of it. Do you want to give the—we have a few minutes left in the program, so do you want to give the folks maybe some uh, heads up, a sneak peek into what's going to happen next with Gideon? Uh, I mean, th this is really an interesting—because uh, there's there's a lot of—how of, um, uh, shall I put this? There's a lot of— pietism in Judaism that comes from Judges chapter 7 about how we pray to God, whether we kneel or whether we are prostrate, and all of those kinds of, you know, sort of the, so the, the postures of prayer, a lot of those things come out of, of, Gideon, of this event with Gideon in Judges 7. And so there's a lot to contemplate there, but I often, I often think that we as Christians who have, you know, we, we joke about Lutheran calisthenics, and we stand and we sit and we kneel and we stand and we sit, and we, very rarely are we prostrate on the ground. But um, uh, those kinds of uh, ways in which we come before God and the postures of prayer, um, a, a lot of those things I think might come maybe subtly for us as Christians, certainly more, more in our faith as Jews, um, but they uh, they come out of this next section, which is quite interesting, because God is well, God is again going to show His glory out of a small people. You know, it's not going to be the you know the massive the massive show of force that we we always want to show. But God's going to show because you know if we come before if we come before an adversary with a massive show of force we can delude ourselves into believing that we have done the work. We have accomplished something. And God never wants to give us the, the, the thought that it's on us that we've done this. It is always on him. And so he shows forth his glory to the smallest. Yes, the, uh, the, the narrative of Gideon's going to go on through chapter 8, and in some ways into chapter 9 with his son, 
Uh, but this is an interesting section because, you know, where we have like Shamgar, where we get one verse, you know, and then Deborah, we get a little bit more. Gideon goes over across a, a couple of chapters. Uh, it's interesting how the different uh, the different judges, I should say, are getting, I guess, different amounts of detail passed on through the generations about their events and, and what they were involved with. I suppose this is just kind of like the minor and major prophets. It, it just depends on what's being passed down. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, good concept, yeah. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, well, I'm so thankful that you have been on the show this morning. Uh, this is the Reverend Kevin Parviz. He's the pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. Brother, we'll see you uh, next time. Yeah, blessed Easter. You too, brother. Well, folks, I, as I said, though, you know, Gideon goes on for a couple chapters, so I hope you'll join us tomorrow for Chapter 7, and then— Thursday for chapter 8. And so through these chapters, we'll continue to hear how God will use Gideon to deliver the Israelites from their oppressors. We'll go into Gideon's ephod and then even the death of Gideon, and that's going to be all on Thursday. Then don't forget that this Holy Week on Good Friday, we're going to have a special free text First Friday episode of Thy Strong Word featuring myself and two guests, the Reverends Chris Amon and Jesse Baker. We're going to be discussing the whole episode all together, Jesus's final words from the cross. So it's going to be stepping away from judges and talking about this very important thing. You can tune into it, listen live on Good Friday or catch it on demand. And then we'll be back to judges on Easter Monday. Uh, but other than that, I pray that God will bless you this Holy Week. I look forward to seeing you and hearing from you tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all. As we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. Amen.